Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us, or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never it's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Buck Sexton with America Now, with all of you now. Thank you so much for being here. Great to have you by my side. A lot to talk about today. And it's all connected, well, not all of it, but a lot of it. Um, There are, in fact, some explicit connections that we can draw between subject matter that might otherwise not in any way be pertinent. You could say these are non-seculars. They got nothing to do with what we're talking about, except people are saying they do. Lots of misdirection, lots of uh, obfuscation. Uh, trying to muddy the waters, change the subject. Ooh, all the all the political fights right now. So in- interesting. You have major stories today that you can draw links to, all of them. Uh, you have, of course, the Gorsuch confirmation fight, which we will get into in some depth here in just a moment. You have the latest on the Trump-Russia surveillance and investigations. Uh, The bombshell coming out earlier today from Fox News and Bloomberg News that sources indicate that Susan Rice, the former national security advisor, was the one ordering all that unmasking. I'll give you in-depth analysis of all of that in just a few moments. Uh, And of course, there was the horrific terrorist attack, almost certainly a jihadist attack uh, based on everything we know so far in St. Petersburg in Russia, uh, which, of course, anything that is Russia, people automatically tie back to Putin and what's going on with the government in Russia, which means they tie it back into what's going on between Putin and Trump. And as you can see, there are lots of connections to draw between all these different stories. There are these threads that are pulled between them. Schumer, Chuck Schumer, has explicitly said uh, that they should hold off on they should hold off on this Supreme Court nomination. Let's start. Let's take Gorsuch first, and we'll get into a bunch of other topics throughout the show. The meeting with China uh, later this week with the Chinese premier between Trump. We've got we got so much show and not quite enough time. So they'll. Uh, so like I said, I'll, I'll get into it as much of it as I possibly can. Let's do Gorsuch nomination first. Now you've got Schumer out there saying that when it comes to this Supreme Court pick. We should wait until the end of the Russia investigation, you see. Isn't that quite a, a cute way of saying that this president isn't even really the president? That he has no right to say that Neil Gorsuch should be the next Supreme Court justice because we're not even sure he should really be the president, right? That's the that's the underlying, underhanded Schumer way of doing things here. And uh, now he's just pretending to be reasonable. I mean, he's reasonable the way that you know, when you've got a burglar in your house, he says to you, well, let's let's not be hasty and call the cops here. Sure, you could listen to the burglar. That's what the Democrats are doing with the filibuster. 
they're saying, oh, let's not use the nuclear option. Let's not go there. Well, you're the ones that are changing the rules and changing the game. I shouldn't say the rules, changing the precedence here, changing the sense of fair play. Democrats don't believe in fair play, though. We've established that not just here on this show, but anybody who's been paying attention for many years now understand. The, pro- the progressive mindset, the, the Democrat progressive status mindset is one that power justifies any move. That if it allows you to be in charge, if it allows you to implement the rest of your agenda, whatever scruples you have to throw overboard, whatever integrity you have to abandon is well worth it. It's not a problem. That we can play audio for you of what these senators, these Democrat senators, were saying when Obama was the one picking nominees versus what they're saying now, the hypocrisy doesn't matter to them. This is true with Democrats. Hypocrisy is irrelevant. Because all it, all it is is a propaganda war. What they said a year ago or even a month ago or a day ago doesn't matter if what they say today helps them tomorrow. That's all they care about. That's all that matters. So then you've got Schumer out there saying, let's just change the nominee. Play clip seven, please. So instead of changing the rules, which is up to Mitch McConnell and the Republican majority, why doesn't President Trump, Democrats, and Republicans in the Senate sit down and try to come up with a mainstream nominee? Look, when a nominee doesn't get 60 votes, you shouldn't change the rules. You should change the nominee. But but we changed the no- we changed the rule before because then you didn't have to get 60 votes. And so we stacked the federal judiciary already with who we wanted. That's what Schumer did. That is the most enduring judicial legacy of the Obama administration, other than, of course, Sotomayor and Kagan, two left wing progressives. Uh, Sotomayor, whose reasoning from the bench, who's written opinions I think most people, most college undergrads would look at them and if they're being honest, say, well, that that just is nonsense. But OK, uh, but they got through. Uh, they got through. And that was because you had a sitting president and they were supposed to be advised and consent from the Senate. It wasn't supposed to be that the Senate just used this to score political partisan points. But that's what's happening. So Schumer's saying, let's change your nominee. But that's not going to happen. They're not going to change the nominee. I am happy to see that there is what I was asking for last week from the Republicans, a unified front, a conservative phalanx, if you will, shields interlocked, shoulders up and shoulder to shoulder. Here's what we've got. Trump saying at his weekly weekly address that uh, Neil Gorsuch is going to get confirmed to the Supreme Court clip one, sir. The duty of judges, therefore is not to rewrite the laws, but to uphold the laws and to apply the Constitution as written. That is the solemn duty of every justice on the Supreme Court. And this is what Judge Gorsuch will do. In recent years, we've seen more and more judges make decisions not based on the Constitution or the rule of law, but based on their preferences, their personal views, or even their political opinions. The Senate will soon have the chance to help preserve our democratic institutions for our children by voting to confirm Judge Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. All right. Judge so the, we, we, yeah, we, we got it. We got it. They got the, they got the, the soaring music below. I just I just, it's just I just sense America there, you know, waving fields of wheat, flowing red, white and blue flags. America 
Love it. Uh, and then uh, you have McConnell. We're laying it down. He's, you know, he's, McConnell's not somebody you really think you'd want, you know, next to you if you were in like a bar fight or something. But I mean, he he's he's getting getting it done on the. McConnell saying that this is going to happen this week. Uh, clip two, please. He'll ultimately be confirmed. Exactly how that happens, Chris, will be up to our Democratic colleagues. And in fact, the business of filibustering judges is a fairly recent invention, ironically, of the now minority in the Senate, the Democrats. Let me ask you, though, some specific questions. Will there be a confirmation vote by Friday? Yes, we're going to confirm uh, Judge Gorsuch uh, this week. Ooh, we're going to confirm. I mean, he's going for it. He's saying they're going to confirm Gorsuch this week. Look at that. We've even got a timeline. This isn't the Obamacare repeal bill in the House, which wasn't a repeal bill. Uh, this isn't the uh, American Health Care Act with, well, there's a phase two and a phase three. And once we get to phase 3.5, no, we don't even know when those phases are. Well, we're not even in phase one because it didn't happen. But McConnell saying it's gonna. This is gonna go down by Friday, so it should be this week. And I know that they've already had a party line vote today in the Judiciary Committee of the Senate, and it was what was it, eleven to nine, right down party lines. I think no surprise there at all. But I, I want to remind everybody there was a, a very important point that was made there by McConnell, although not not just in in the way that he said it. It's a little more than that. So this is a recent invention of the Democrat Party, this whole notion of filibustering judicial nominees. And there was the infamous and really uh, deplorable, proper usage of the word there, unlike what Hillary Clinton does, a deplorable situation that played out with Judge uh, Bork, now who, who did not become a Supreme Court justice because of it, as we know. Here is the way we view all this now and we think to ourselves, okay, but the Democrats were being, you know, the Democrats were being... Uh, they say they were being reasonably for with uh, Merrick Garland. Who who cares, right? It was they knew that uh, it was an election year, and the Senate did not have to do it on their timeline, and the Senate did not do it on their timeline. Um, but keep in mind that they broke after using the filibuster when they want to, right? They were the ones that decided the Harry Reid rule that they would eliminate filibusters for lower level federal court nominees. And as a result of that, about a third of all federal judges in the country are not just Democrat appointees. They are specifically Obama appointees. These are lifetime appointments for judges, everybody. This is now you're going to have for decades. And we see how we see how important this is. What has been the most effective line of progressive defense against Trump's agenda so far? It's the judiciary. I mean, he's been able to blunt the media's uh, efforts against him. They're all out of Saul. Trump knows how to handle that. The administration has geared up for that, and they understood that it was coming. But with judges that are just willing to write opinions based upon whim instead of law, what do you do about that? I know Trump is such a tyrant. I've already gone over this with you. He's such a tyrant that a federal judge in Hawaii can overturn Trump's order, and he's like, all right, I guess I guess we'll see you in court, <laughs> like, like all tyrants of the past. Uh, but anyway, keep in mind that that's the most important thing that the Obama administration achieved for the cause of progressivism, I think, certainly in the judicial branch. But you could argue it's one of the most enduring legacies of the Obama administration, P 
period. We keep seeing these pieces, and they're important, about how Trump is piece by piece dismantling Obama's legacy uh, of executive orders and various other things he put in place by decree. Well, he's not getting rid of the judges. And some of these judges are far left, and they stack, like I said, a third of the federal bench right now is Obama, uh, specifically Obama appointees. Never mind who's still a Clinton appointee or who. The Republicans are terrible when it comes to this game, too. They appoint, I mean, look at some of the Supreme Court justices we've gotten from Republican, uh, Republican presidents in the past. But Republicans don't play this game as well. They don't play it as with as defined a mind and in as dirty a fashion. But keep in mind, they assumed that Hillary Clinton was going to win. And so they would be able to tilt the judiciary in the, the, the uh, Supreme Court, rather, in their direction once she won. Uh, they've assumed all along that it's only a matter of time before they can just cede all of the federal courts and have a strong majority on the Supreme Court, meaning, you know, five leftists, hardline leftists. Uh, and it was just a matter of time before they would get there. And that they would be on the way to that creating between the media, the bureaucracy, and the judiciary all of the trappings of a one-party state, right? Because your votes won't really matter because the legislative branch would be so... Uh, inept and would be so truncated as a result of what was put in place by the federal bureaucracy and the federal courts that the legislative branch becomes a vestige of some previous constitutional order that the founding fathers laid out that no one really pays attention attention to anymore. The courts have been part of the game all along for the progressives, and that's why they are staging this all-out assault, uh, because they know that they will lose on this round, but they they no longer can hide their hand here. We understand that this is part of the agenda and has been for quite some time. And if it weren't for Trump's victory, you would be getting a far leftist on the bench right now. Forget about Merrick Garland. Oh, by the, does anybody really think that they would have stayed, if Hillary had won, that they would have put up Merrick Garland? I don't think so. I think you would have gotten somebody else. That's just my opinion, but I, I don't buy it. Uh, I think... Or if they if they did get by the way Garland's I'm sure progressive and Democrat enough so maybe they would have gone with them I mean the guy is not he's not like fully communist but uh, I'm kidding I'm kidding but he was Democrat enough for them that means he'd probably go with them eighty percent of the time you know he he'd he'd not see it the same way as Ruth Bader Ginsburg but he would agree with her eighty or ninety percent of the time which is all they need all they need this is a Hugely important point to the Democrats, and that's why they are standing and fighting on this. Even though they know they can't win, they have to make the argument now. They want to make the narrative. Uh, they want to construct the narrative in such a way that their base feels like they're fighting. And if the situation gets turned around somehow in the midterms, they're just going to go as scorched earth with everything in the judiciary that they can, as they did previously with the, with the read option, so-called nuclear option. Um, but I want to get a little more on this, and we'll, we'll we'll have some fun with various media figures and how they've been talking about this and a whole bunch of other stuff. 844-900-2825. We still have to talk about former National Security Advisor under the Obama administration, Susan Rice, and the alleged unmasking of Trump, Trump officials, maybe even Trump family members for months before the election. 
uh, and the media is playing so many games on this when they're lying. They're either ignorant or they're lying or both. We'll talk about that. Also, the terrorist attack in Russia. I'm a former counterterrorism analyst for the CIA, so these are always these horrific events uh, are uh, things that I've spent a lot of time on in the past. And uh, I've got to run into a break now. We will get right back. Stay with me. All right, so uh, this is going to be one of those moments where I get to show you or you get to hear uh, the difference between the way journalism is practiced in reality versus the way so-called journalists think they practice journalism. Uh, You have today um, a discussion between Senator Orrin Hatch and two CNN anchors. One is Poppy Harlow. And the other one, I can't remember, uh, Berman. I can't remember his first name. John, I think. Uh, But anyway, and it just is so interesting. They're supposed to be, here's a U.S. senator, and uh, surprisingly, both of these, quote, news anchors, end quote, end up acting like they're lawyers for the DNC or something. Play clip five. They're politicizing this whole process. And uh, why? On a man like Gorsuch, who, who, uh, you know, has agreed with the liberals on the on the uh, circuit court of appeals for the tenth circuit, my circuit, ninety nine percent of the time. I mean, this is a guy who's a mainstream conservative, uh, which they hate. They don't like that, and of course, they're still upset about my other friend, Mary Garland. So there seems well, to be a right. double standard. There seems to be a double standard where you're saying it was all right last year when we, for political reasons halted the nomination of Merrick Garland, but it's not okay this year when Democrats try to halt the nomination of Judge Gorsuch. Hold Why up, is that hold up. Press standard? pause for a second. I'll just tell you so so is he, so is Mr. Mr. Berman there, is he, he really thinks this, it's the same thing to say, we're going to wait until the presidential election happens later this year, is the same thing as saying, we just don't like your nominee, so it's never going to happen, because that's the Chuck Schumer approach. That's a very simple thing to figure out, isn't it? These are not the which of these things is not like the other. This is they're not the same thing. But surprisingly to nobody, I'm sure, because CNN, that's how it's presented. Oh, these are similar situations. No, they're not similar situations. All right, keep playing, please. That's total BS. (laughs) Yes, it is. There, I can't go back in time and, and show you any case where during a presidential election year they've allowed a Supreme Court justice be nominated unless both sides agreed and both sides didn't agree frankly uh, it was every right of senator mcconnell and the republicans to say we're just not going to do this during the presidential year and at that time keep in mind it looked as though hillary was a sure winner and we would have gotten an even more liberal judge than that one but that was a that was a stand on principle not some new uh, barbaric thing that uh, some have tried but, to make but, it. But, but. nice stuff from uh, from hatch there i have to say totally agree with him by the way uh, but 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 it, it goes on and they keep ju- they jump in. It's it's a funny exchange. I don't know if we even have uh, more of it or not. It's a funny exchange between all of them because you know they they just refuse to believe that we have uh, nothing uh, that there's no principled argument that can be made in favor of the Chuck Schumer position here. There is no principled argument. It's just uh, it, it, does any person really think they could stand up and say well. Uh, Sotomayor and Kagan, they're totes qualified, but Gorsuch, nah, nah, bro, he's not qualified. Someone would have to explain that to me, and they couldn't because it is to borrow from Warren Hatch. Yes. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. 
Phones are open. Team Buck, 844-900-2825, if you would like to call in. Um, look, the, the, the Democrats are the reason that we are having this confrontation right now. They put it in motion with the Harry Reid rule. And, and now we have on CNN, I saw this just in the break, the banner is Dems have the votes uh, to block Gorsuch unless GOP changes the rules. They make it sound like there's this long-standing, oh, 60-vote threshold for a Supreme Court nominee. They inver- they don't force that threshold ever to be met. That's not the way this goes. First of all, it's not a rule. It just has to do with cloture, which means ending discussion. And beyond that, the Democrats are the ones who started this process. Well, now Republicans are going to finish it. You know, it's like I had this friend whose dad once said, hey, you start a fight with me, you're going to hear two sounds. Uh you swinging at me and then you hitting the floor or something like that, I think it was. Um, uh, yeah, that's right. I think that's what he said. And look, you know, de- dem- Democrats, like I said, they picked this fight and now they need to finish it. Um, uh, so anyway, um, on to some of how this goes here. We've got, uh, first of all, Cuomo. <laughs> Cuomo out there on not the... Uh, not the New York State. Uh, what I was gonna say, Attorney General. No, he's actually the governor of my state. That's that's scary just to think about, even though it's been true for a while. Uh, but his son is at CNN, and he had this to say about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Play clips. Play play clip six. There is a little bit of kind of light math where it's well, you're replacing a conservative. This guy's a conservative. Maybe it's a wash. Maybe he's not even as. Uh, for- forceful as Scalia was on the court. That's a very high bar. But then you have the political calculation. If you go all in on Gorsuch, what about when Anthony Kennedy resigns? What if Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, runs out of gas? Hey, what if Ruth Bader Ginsburg runs out of gas? (laughs) What what is that? What does that even mean, by the way? I mean, I hope he, you know, I assume he means she like gets tired and retires, but you know, what if she runs? What if she runs out of gas? I just that's kind of a funny way to say it. I mean, uh, okay, okay, there, anchor, anchor man. Um, but so yeah, you you have the political calculations. Everyone's aware of it. I would just like there to be more honesty in all this, and the honesty would be the following: that um, there is that this is now all just a that the Supreme Court is power politics. It is a fight. It is a partisan fight. We all know that people either have a right or left philosophy, and while people on the right who have a judicial philosophy are willing to sometimes do things that make people on the left happy, unlike those on the left in terms of their judicial philosophy, which almost always angers those on the right, uh, but this is now all built on facades, on a pretense. It's not really honest. By the way, Lindsey Graham was at a uh, town hall, uh, what was this, over the weekend, I guess? Yeah. And, and he said that he was going to back Gorsuch, and this happened. Play clip eight, please. I'm going to vote for Judge Gorsuch. I think he's a highly qualified man. And in 100 years, we've never had a vacancy filled in the last year of a president's term when the primary season was afoot. And Joe Biden told us exactly what Democrats would do. Uh, he's like, I mean, come on, everybody. Let's be civilized. Let's not go crazy. Uh, but 
uh, th- this is where we are now. The Supreme Court is just an extension of our politics. I, I wish I wish it weren't so, but maybe we can drop all the uh, not necessarily faux reverence, but I think exaggerated reverence, both for uh, the impartial, nonpartisan nature of the Supreme Court as well as, by the way, the Senate. So the Senate's going to change the Senate rules. You got John McCain out there who's saying, "Oh, you know, yeah, fine, I'll, I'll, I'll vote to do this," but the Senate's never going to be the same. Uh, okay. Well, th- who is that really on? I mean, whose fault is that? I think it's quite clearly the Democrats' fault, and yet here we are. Um, here we are being told that this is somehow on the Republicans. Uh, uh oh, wait, one fun thing, by the way, Diane Feinstein. I know hypocrisy doesn't matter to the left, but you got Diane Feinstein out there in 2006 saying the following about a Supreme Court nominee, Senator Feinstein, who now says she will vote against Gorsuch just because. This is what she said back in the day. To be very candid with you, I don't see those kinds of egregious things emerging that would justify a filibuster. And I, I think when it comes to filibustering a uh, Supreme Court appointment, you really have to have something out there, whether it's gross moral turpitude or something that comes to the surface. Now, I mean, this is a man I might disagree with. That doesn't mean he shouldn't be on the court. I think she's talking about Alito. That's back in 2006. Uh, Yeah, sounds pretty reasonable in in 2006. Now it's, oh, no, can't, can't do the Gorsuch thing. What's the re- they, the reasoning is so flimsy, by the way. They've got nothing. I mean, they, they, they've tried to come up with some objection to him on grounds of impartiality or shady connections to billionaires. Or, and it's so flimsy that it is uh, just no one can really take it seriously. So all they do is talk in circles and say, well, I'm just not going to do it. Because, you, know, you know, it's, it's the, the rationale changes day in and day out. Yeah, but look, Democrats started this whole process. 2003, they filibustered to block Miguel Estrada from the D.C. Circuit. So, and then the Dems decided to go nuclear. Okay, well, the Democrats started it. Republicans are going to finish it. Uh, think about what the alternative is, is here just for a moment while we have the John McCain's of the world, you know, bemoaning the, the loss of the Senate as the genteel place where the passions of the House are, are chilled out or whatever. Um the alternative would be that Republicans show that they are just not as committed to victory as the other side. Full stop. That's the only way you can come out of this. If they're not willing to—Democrats are willing to go nuclear. If they're, And people say, oh, well, what about all the Supreme Court nominees? They didn't have to go nuclear because the Republicans said, all right, we'll give up or down votes on these nominees. And they got through. So the only change in anything is being done by Democrats. The only change in fair play— to foul play is the result of Democrats on this Gorsuch nomination. But this is a big one, by the way. If Trump gets this one through, this is a huge check mark on the, well, no matter what happens, at least Trump beat Hillary side of the equation. This is a big thumbs up for the administration if he gets through. And it'll, uh, I think, go a long way to make people think that there's some, some goodwill for the Trump administration, even amongst, even among some never-Trumpers I know. I think there would be a willingness to say, okay, well, that was a good thing that happened. We can celebrate that. I want to talk to you about Nunez and, see, I'm saying it right now, 
It was explained to me that that was the way to say it, by the way. It has to do, I never took Spanish in school. I took French, Arabic, and German, believe it or not. Oh, yeah. Buck is, uh, ich bin, uh, I don't know. Ich bin, du, du, uh, nah, I got nothing. I was going to say I'm the bus driver because I think I remember that, but I even forgot that. My German was terrible. My Arabic's pretty bad too. French, I was okay. As you know, I like to do the French accents. What was I saying to you though? Oh, yeah, I never took Spanish, so I'm not good at the Spanish words. Uh, but Nunez, uh, we will talk about that and the Susan Rice component of all of this. No one seems to care. Can I can I just preview this before we go into the break here? You have arguably the most partisan, least trusted, former Obama administration national security official, allegedly is the one who would have been abusing her authority. It's not necessarily illegal, but it is an abuse of authority. It would certainly require someone to be brought up in an ethics investigation and fired if this were true. Abusing her authority for the purposes of undermining, embarrassing, and possibly toppling the Trump administration. And no one seems to care in most of the media. How is that possible, everyone? I keep seeing stories that don't matter. To, I'm seeing a story about a meeting with, like, uh, in the Seychelles with Eric Prince or something. How is that as big a story as this? It's not, is it? Let's talk about this one. So what is the bigger story? Uh, the possibility that former General Flynn will get immunity to testify before the House or the Senate Intelligence Committee? Uh, or that a former Obama official may have abused her authority to spread as far as possible within the government the names that she requested to be unmasked that reportedly, and again, I, I don't say reportedly or allegedly because I'm trying to hedge or it's, I, I haven't seen this stuff. I don't know. All I know is what is being reported. We should get confirmation. I'd like this these dueling investigations. Well, they're they're dueling and there's the dueling investigations of Russia Trump conspiracy and surveillance of Trump and his associates. Those are two investigations that are under the same broad umbrella, but they're really two different investigations. And then you also have the House Intelligence Committee investigation, the Senate Intelligence Committee investigation, whatever the FBI is up to these days as well. I would like them to start getting us information that can be confirmed this can neither confirm nor deny stuff starts to yeah, starts to get a little annoying after a while when these are issues of national importance there are major political consequences perhaps even more than just political consequences i would like to know what's real and what's not here's what's reported today i'm sure many of you have seen but just to get into this a little bit so we're on the same page and then i'll give you uh, my sense of what all this means and where it's going you have Eli Lake over at Bloomberg, as well as Fox News, reporting that National Security Advisor Susan Rice, quote, requested unmasked raw intelligence information about members of the Trump campaign and transition team. And Fox News' Adam Housley reports that top members of the Obama administration saw Rice's requested information. According to Housley, we know that there was incidental collection of information on Trump and his team for up to a year before the inauguration. That information was disseminated through NSA channels. It's unprecedented. I'm told the way this was done, Housley explained. He added, what I'm told is that when these reports came out, names were there, and that's basically unprecedented. This unmasked information, these names of Americans who had done nothing wrong, 
was disseminated to all of NSC, all of the National Security Council, some of the Department of Defense. Rice knew about this possibly as well. So, you have a report today, and I I would really like there to be confirmation of this one way or another. But you have a report out there today that Susan Rice, uh, she of... This was a protest uh, about Benghazi. Remember that? This was a protest. We don't know if it's terrorism. Uh, Maybe we can actually, let's see if we can grab that soundbite just to play, just to refresh everybody's memory of Susan Rice on the Sunday talk shows after the Benghazi incident. And remember, she she was not, this was not a moment where uh, she was chastened afterwards. No, she, she took one for the Obama team, and so they rewarded her afterwards. Remember, that was at a critical juncture for Obama's re-election campaign against Mitt Romney. Right? It was September, right before the election of 2012. And she went out on the Sunday shows and said stuff that we did find out in the subsequent investigations of Benghazi. We found out that she lied, that she knew. And by the way, anybody who wasn't an imbecile knew that what she was saying was a lie just based on what had happened, right? It was a protest. No, it obviously wasn't a protest. Um, and. Not a lot of protesters walking around with Kalashnikovs and RPGs in coordinated fashion, knowing about multiple uh, target locations. Anyway, uh, but that's who Susan Rice is. So if you're looking for somebody from the Obama administration who has a reputation for being for, for, uh, first and foremost a partisan, somebody who above all else seems loyal to the left, to the Democrat Party, instead of her posi- her very senior position, very trusted position at uh, the top of the national security apparatus in this country. I don't think you could do much better than Susan Rice if you're looking for somebody who fits that description. And now they get into the... Well, there, there are a couple of different versions of the defense mechanism. You will see first, by the way, and this this translates into much of the frustration that people see and our willingness to abide by Trump's uh, off-the-cuff remarks about much of the media. How is this not a huge news story? Only two news sources that I've seen have really covered it. There was a description of it on CNN, and I'll get into that later. Tonight on Jake Tapper's show, I watched part of the interview um, that did everything possible to make this seem like it was mundane standard totally nothing to see here folks if there's anything to even talk about in the first place that is the media approach to this well let's just dig into the allegation for a second here before we get into the defenses the allegation is that susan rice who has access to anything she wants to see as national security advisor in the united states government that susan rice was somehow uh requesting time and again that information about Trump, his family, or senior Trump officials would no longer be protected. You see, they had these procedures in place about intelligence collection to protect people in this country, to protect U.S. persons from exactly this kind of situation. The allegation is that she requested many times, we don't have a, we don't have a number yet, but that she requested um, that the names be shared or shown in the reports. They were shown and then shared. Uh, and this would 
start to raise a lot of questions like why is this information uh why is this information that she felt she needed to have now you could also say well, well buck if this was initially information that was redacted from a report and she requested it uh how could she know well maybe she knew from the context of what the information was and she just wanted it to be official but then you'd also wonder well, that's unusual. You're not supposed to really do that. This now falls under the category of discretion. And I would point out to those who are making the case, as many are right now, that this is not an issue at all. They won't say whether or not it's true that Susan Rice, as National Security Advisor, did this. And by the way, is anyone really unable to connect the dots between uh, the... Uh, sharing of information like this that allegedly Susan Rice was unmasking names and then all of a sudden later on you have General Flynn and information goes to the Washington Post about his phone call to a Russian ambassador. I mean, so, so it's not like this happened without consequence to anyone and that's the only actual crime that anyone has been able to point to yet of any kind whatsoever in all of this Trump Russia stuff with the leaking to the Washington Post about the Flynn phone call. That's the only one. And if you're okay with that, then you're just a complete partisan hack. I mean, if you're okay with that, you don't care about civil liberties, you don't care about constitutional protections, you just hate Trump and all of his enablers so much that anything they do to defeat Trump is okay with you, right? It's completely unacceptable what happened there. But you'll notice that the same people are making this case now that, oh, well, even if the unmasking did happen many times involving Trump and people around Trump, uh, this falls under the broad discretion that the National Security Advisor and some other senior officials would have. Okay, were they abusing that discretion? And why were they using the discretion at all in these cases? And where can we follow this train of information to figure out who else had it? Because I think that's the only way we actually might get to a prosecution here. We've got more on this. I'll be right back. He spreads freedom. Because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Here's what the Washington Post thinks is worth, uh, worth talking about today. Big story here. They report that the Blackwater, uh, Blackwater founder, Eric Prince, held secret Seychelles meeting to establish Trump-Putin back channel. Uh, and then they go into the details here. Now, there is nothing about this that is official. Um, there's nothing about this that is illegal. There's nothing about this that I find all that interesting. It, it more or less comes down to some Emiratis, uh, some officials from the United Arab Emirates, met with Eric Prince, who founded Blackwater, uh, and a, a Russian guy in the Seychelles to talk about, well, their relationship and how they could be constructive going forward, and you know who knows what else. Prince is not a government official. He owns a private company, uh, obviously most well-known for Blackwater, which has since changed its name because of, well, a lot of trouble from the Iraq War and elsewhere. Uh, but this is not, to me, uh, this is evidence of what exactly? Even if, the, let's just say this was all true for a moment. 
What would this mean? That the Trump administration was friendly, or some people in the Trump administration, Trump himself, Bannon, who knows, friendly with a guy who has international security contacts all over the world and is very, obviously, uh, very connected and powerful, Eric Prince, and wanted to see about whether he could be a back channel for communications to Russia in an effort to, as this piece says, uh, pull Russia away from Iran uh, and specifically pull Russia away from assisting the Ir- Iranians in Syria. Isn't, isn't that, uh, that would be a worthwhile endeavor, wouldn't it? What, what would be the problem here? I, I don't understand where the sellout comes here, where, where the big moment of, of treason happens, or, you know, implied or otherwise by the news media. I don't see it. I'm, I'm still looking for it. I don't see it. A lot of stories today. About, so this is they're doing this story. I'm just I want to make sure that I'm not leading you astray here. I'm pretty sure there's still nothing on Susan Rice on the front. Nope. Nothing on the front page of the Washington Post about Susan Rice. Uh, that doesn't they don't feel the need to talk about this at all. So that's one way to handle this, right? That's one method of dealing with this information that is not particularly helpful for the Democrat Party right now. Let's just, let me put out some possibilities. Let's get, let's turn our eyes for a moment here to the Susan Rice situation. Now we got Jason Chaffetz out there is talking a lot, a lot of, he's getting a lot of airplay on Flynn today. And not a lot of talk about, a lot of talk about Flynn and Nunez, but not a lot of talk about Susan Rice. Isn't that interesting? Um, But, there are a few ways that this is discussed right now. For one, you have uh, this on CNN just uh, before we came on air. They're saying that unmasking, this is one of the story. This is one of the talking points, by the way. Listen for this. You will hear this from people. Unmasking is not leaking or unmasking is not illegal. Some variation of that. Play clip 19, please. The difference between spying on and unmasking, certainly. I mean, it, what's clear, uh, the, the implication from these stories is, is that the, President Obama, Susan Rice, uh, specifically targeted Trump administration advisors during the campaign to surveil them, in effect. What, in fact, happened is that these were Russian officials that were gathered up in routine intelligence collect- collection, and they were either talking about, at times, Trump administration officials, and even when you're talking about someone in these the Trump, uh, campaign Trump, Trump, campaign, Trump campaign or transition officials, even if you're talking about them, that name is masked in intelligence reports, or possibly Trump campaign officials might have been on the other end of the line, and those would be unmasked as well. Okay, pause uh, for a second. To be clear, I- so, of course, first he talks about talking about Trump officials. Uh, okay, let's assume that that's, what, that's all true, that this was just, you know, uh, Russian A talking to Russian B and, you know, Trump did this and Trump did that and you know, Trump, all this. Uh, they're talking about Trump or they're talking about Bannon, you know. You know, Bannon is strong like a bear. I, I don't know, whatever they're saying. I don't think they said that, but whatever they're saying. Uh, wh- why would they, wh- why, why the unmasking of a U.S. person's name and that, wh- what's the justification for it? It's not. It, yeah, they have discretion to do it. Susan Rice would have the discretion to do it. But the whole reason that there is masking is to protect the identity of people that are caught up in intelligence collection that are not supposed to be. 
because they're, they have privacy rights and they have constitutional rights to not be spied on by their own government, intentional or otherwise. So what? Uh, someone explain that to me. Oh, these intrepid journalists. We just saw Jake Tapper talking to uh, Jim Shooter there on CNN, their senior national security correspondent. Does one of them want to offer to me a theory as to in what universe is a Russian talking to another Russian about some member of the Trump team worthy of, of releasing that person's name and then distributing it around the community so they can hear? Could it could it be that the motivation behind that was to embarrass? Because I don't know what was said, but is that at least possible? What's the other motivation for it? It's so fascinating that this is going on that they just felt the need to unmask. So that's one aspect of this. And then he also says, on the other end of the line, so then we are talking about somebody who's a U.S. person, whether it's Trump family or a Trump official, who's on the line, and they request an unmasking of the name. Well, let's just be clear about this. You know, if you have the the mosaic here of lots of different communications, as Susan Rice would have, was she able to figure out that it was most likely this Trump person or that Trump person on whatever, you know, because... Who was the, I don't know who's on the other end of this call, but keep in mind that she was asking for these unmaskings for some reason, and that's not standard operating procedure. So why? And I would want to ask this question too. Intrepid journalists should pay attention. You know, they're so honest and forthright and down the center and all this stuff. Were there other people who just had this amazing knack for requesting the unmasking of Trump or Trump official names in these classified communications? I'd like to know. I'd like to see if if it just was a co- a massive coincidence that time and time again, Susan Rice wants Trump or Trump names included in these reports to be distributed around the intelligence community. But like other senior intelligence officials didn't think it was that important, didn't care. Wouldn't that be a worthwhile question to ask? Wouldn't, wouldn't you want to know what the answer to that is? No, no, we, we don't get that. Let's talk more about Eric Prince's meeting in the Seychelles with some shakes and a Russian dude. Because that's really important. No, no, even allegation of impropriety, illegality, nothing. Not even, not even. It's a Hatch Act violation, or oh, it's a Logan Act violation. They can't even throw that out. There's nothing. Guys allowed to sit and talk to people. By the way, peeling Russia away from Iran in Syria and peeling Russia away from Iran in general, it would be an incredibly worthy and worthwhile foreign policy objective. Side note. So that that was the purpose of that meeting the Washington Post is writing about. If Eric Prince could pull that off, could could help pull that off, the guy deserves a medal. But I digress. Then you get into this. Uh, sorry, play the rest of the uh, of the CNN clip, if you would, clip 19. I've spoken to several former intelligence officials who've worked, and I should note this, uh, for both Democratic and Republican administrations. And they say, based on what they know, uh, this unmasking, if it happened, would not be out of bounds. A few points here. One... Unmasking Pause is not for a second. Le- What does that mean, out of bounds? Better, better word to use or a word I'd want to answer. Is, is it unusual? Was it unusual that Susan Rice was doing this? Out of bounds, to me, is, is trying to rely on the fact that it's not technically illegal. But there are a lot of things that the government can do. There are a lot of things the executive branch can do that, while not necessarily technically illegal, strike all of us as kind of funny and not in a good way 
There are a lot of things the executive branch, in fact, in recent years in the era of the war on terror has done that are, strictly speaking, I suppose, legal. I I mean, look at some of the drone strike policies of the United States government in recent years. Uh, strictly speaking, I suppose it's legal under war powers, but we've we've been pushing the limits there, haven't we? And the administration, the Obama administration, in some cases, didn't even want to talk about some of the drone strikes that had occurred even after they had been written about in the press because of some of the very difficult issues they raised. So what's legal and what's ethical or what's legal and what is a massive political problem are not the same thing. And that you may have had somebody acting under national security auspices, Susan Rice in this case, for purely political purposes. Again, I can't prove it, but I I got questions. That is worthy of a whole lot more attention than it's getting. But to say it's not out of bounds is to say it's not illegal. Okay, well, you know what else is not illegal? Uh, if a if a prosecutor just decided, or I'm sorry, forget about a prosecutor, the president could just pardon whomever he wants, right? But if the president ran around uh, pardoning every terrorist, let's say, that was locked up in federal prison in this country, people would start asking some questions. They wouldn't be okay with that. And you'd say, well, Buck, that's within his power. Yeah, that's within, you know, if, if Obama had run around pardoning every terrorist, by the way, when it comes to pardoning terrorists, that's really more of a Clinton thing. Go back and learn about how Hillary Clinton, when she needed to win a Senate seat in New York, made sure that Bill Clinton pardoned uh, a, members of a Puerto Rican terrorist group involved in a bombing that killed people trying to have lunch in downtown Manhattan. But, you know, the Clintons are really ethical people. It's such a shame Hillary Clinton's not the president of the United States. Makes me so sad. But the president could go around pardoning every terrorist. He could have done that. But we would want to know that. While it's within his authority, it certainly wouldn't be justifiable, and we would want to hold him accountable. If Obama had done that or Trump did that now, I mean, if any president did that, we would want to know. But it is, strictly speaking, legal. The president can pardon anyone, full stop. The president can do it. So, okay, now we're in a position where You can have the requested unmasking of names, and we're supposed to believe that that's just fine. Okay, well, there are some other questions I would want answered here. Like, did this happen to Obama and Obama officials before? I'm sure they have records of this. I mean, they have a record of every every email you've sent on Yahoo and Gmail and your private server. The Internet companies have that stretching back since you, you know, had an AOL username and you were, like, chatting with people about your favorite sports team on CompuServe. I mean, all that stuff is still there. I'm pretty sure the national security apparatus could figure out whether there was all of this requested unmasking by a senior opposition political figure during the course of an election. Did any Bush officials ask to hear about communications involving senior Obama officials? You say, oh, Buck, well, they wouldn't have known if it's masked. You can, maybe they could tell from the context, and maybe they wanted the names to be included in the reports for reasons of embarrassment, for reasons of I don't know. We'd have to see what the communications were. But this is a big story, everybody. This should matter. The media should care about this to either verify or disprove. And yet, nothing. Deafening silence. Nothing for most of them. I don't even want to talk about it. The defense that something is not necessarily illegal is not a defense of its propriety. It's not to say that it's just okay. And think about what the precedent would be here. 
you may have a member of the opposition political party for an incoming, well, at the time, a presidential election that everybody believed was going to go to the Democrats anyway. But why the sharing of this information broadly within the government? Why the change in Obama, why the Obama mandated change in the sharing of how raw intelligence uh, gets sent around with the national security uh, complex? Why we have former Obama officials coming on TV saying, as uh, Evelyn Farkas did, that they were worried and so they were making sure they shared all this information as broadly as possible. They keep saying they're so worried about these communications and there's all these implications about this. And Susan Rice must have been worried about something if she was ordering this unmasking. Why did she need to know, everybody? What was she trying to figure out? If it was just mundane conversations, a CNN, that's what they were trying. Oh, it's totally mundane. No problem here at all. Not out of bounds, not illegal. Then why did Susan Rice want to know? Why'd she need to see the names? Again, assuming that's true. Do we have any answers to that? It seems increasingly likely to me that what happened was that there was so much hatred in some quarters of the national security apparatus in this country, at the very top, meaning the political appointee level of national security in this country, whether it's DOJ, uh, NSC, wherever. There was so much animosity and hatred towards Trump that some of them, I don't know who exactly yet, thought that if they just did everything they could to get information on Trump, they thought that Trump and his associates were dirty. Maybe they really believed there was some Russia conspiracy going on. And so they played fast and loose with the rules, and they abused their discretion, and then somebody leaked illegally to a paper about what happened with Flynn and Kiziliak. But you know what? At the end of the day... They didn't get anything. They don't have anything. And so now they're just desperate to run out the clock on all of this before people realize that this all just may have been one partisan hit job, the whole thing. And they abused their national security powers to do anything in their power to try to hurt Trump and his people, and it didn't even work. They didn't find anything. Wouldn't that be an interesting state of affairs? All right, we're going to hit a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back, team. Phone lines are open here in the Freedom Hut, 844-900-2825. We have Andrew in Mississippi. You are on the Bucks Action Show, sir. Welcome. Hey, Buck. I just wanted to make a point that, um, to me, practically speaking, there doesn't seem to be much difference between incidental collection with unmasking and actual spying. It seems to me that if... um, whoever it may be in the Amaba administration wanted to actually collect his information or his associates' information, him being Trump, and maintain plausible deniability, they could just dragnet up everybody who they thought he might be talking to and then unmask him after the fact. Well, that's a, a, you, sir, are, your, your uh, question here, rather your, your statement is very astute. Our friend Annie McCarthy, who comes on the show on a regular basis, who's one of the few federal prosecutors who's really dealt with very high-level terrorism cases, and as he said here on the show, and FISA, and understands all the different ins and outs of how, from a legal perspective, how that works, says that his concern in the past was, or rather his his feeling in the past was, it would be difficult to abuse FISA uh, for such a purpose, but now he's been saying, I, I, maybe this is what's actually been happening here. Right? I mean, th- think about this. If you... If there are some people are being so blase about this whole thing, you're like, oh, you know, there's just this collection and it's all so normal. 
uh, I, I don't know where does where does that stop and start? Uh, if if is there any limit to what I mean? If unmasking is purely a function of discretion, well, what what if we just decide we're going to unmask unmask first, ask questions later? You know, I mean that that to me seems like a very a very real question to ask. What what protections are really in place if it's just mere curiosity? You know, there are legal standards, for example, for U.S. citizens, which I know is different in the criminal uh, criminal procedure for when you can get different information. I went through this process at the NYPD sometimes with uh, we're trying to find a you know, we need to look up information. Does it have to be just part of an investigation? Do we need to have reasonable suspicion a crime was committed? I mean, there are these standards now. It's not perfect, but you have to articulate it. What's the standard for, you know? Uh, the standard that Susan Rice was using for unmasking. Now, they may say that they won't talk about these standards publicly and they won't talk about Susan Rice and, and what she did here publicly. Uh, but that's going to leave us with a lot of questions that are still unanswered. Andrew, are you there? I was. I was oh, hello, sir. I am. I am. I just wanted to make that point. I figured you could expand upon that distinction a little better than I could, but it just came to my mind, so I appreciate you taking No, I, look, absolutely. Andrew, thank you for calling in. I mean, while I was bringing up uh, what Andy said here on the show was that it is clearly possible because he has he has written about it, and you can just play this out uh, in your head. It is clearly possible to come up with a, a uh, or use national security collection methods as a pretext to get information on certain U.S., uh, U.S. citizens, and as a huge end run to any constitutional protections they would have. It's clearly possible to come up with a way of doing that. Uh, and no one, you know, civil liberties, constitutional protection, all that, none of that matters. Let's let's talk more about whether Flynn uh, is going to get an immunity for his testimony, because that's a favorite subject of the media. And look, I will talk with you about that in a few minutes, but notice how we've talked about the Susan Rice angle to this first because anybody who's being honest would tell you that's a much bigger story. He's an ex-CIA officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. But I do have a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center. 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. All right, welcome back, team. We've got Heather Wilhelm on the line. She's a National Review columnist and a senior contributor uh, contributor for The Federalist. Heather, great to have you. Hey, great to be on. Uh, so let's go through some of the uh, some of the big stuff from today. Uh, first off, the Schumer position on Gorsuch, well, the Democrat position on Gorsuch overall, untenable to anybody who is acquainted with recent uh, Democrat shenanigans over appointees and judges and everything else. But they, they don't really care, do they? I mean, saying it's saying it's hypocrisy, it's hypocritical. They're not going to care about that. Oh, not at all. You know, and and we all know. How exactly how this is going to play out, right? And I think uh, Schumer knows exactly how it's going to play out. Um, and, you know, I'd say the treatment of Gorsuch in the media is a great example of what I speak about in my piece, which is endless hyperbole. It's the end of the world all the time. Yeah, I, that doesn't seem to be stopping at all, by the way. I thought that maybe <laughs> there would be, they would realize it was more effective if there was some stop and start to it. Like not everything could be the end of the world with Trump. But in fact, many people who think of themselves in media as as trusted 
uh, elite journalists who are who are just all about the facts and the truth. Everything Trump does is Hitler. Everything Trump does is the end of the world. And that has not changed really at all. And in fact, I know people that think of themselves as very astute observers who really believe and they won't necessarily say this publicly, but they're in media and they believe that at the end of this, uh, Donald Trump is going or or one of his most senior advisors is going to prison for treason. They they really think that that's going to happen. Well, what's amazing about that, you know, I, I, there's two things here. I keep thinking of there's that Calvin Coolidge quote, and he says, you know, if you see 10 troubles coming down the road, you can be sure, you know, about nine of them are going to run into the ditch before they hit you. And I picture the media every day. They're like Indiana Jones with this big boulder coming after him. And it's every single issue, every single tweet, everything that happens with the Trump administration. And it's exhausting. You know, you can't even follow it. Um, but what's also hilarious about this, and you know, you see a lot of uh, media people openly salivating for impeachment. And, you know, what's amazing about that is it's like, guys, then you're going to end up with Mike Pence, who just this week has become the worst person in the world, right? You know, <laughs> the whole brouhaha about Mike Pence's dinner habits. Um, he, you know, did that tiebreaker vote regarding Planned Parenthood. The media exploded. That's the end of health care, right? That's the end of life as we know it. So I find it interesting, too, that they can't see a step beyond, you know, let's just pretend your fantasy comes true and, and Trump is impeached. You got Mike Pence who you're going to be hysterical about, and everything he does is going to be the end of the world. So, you know, I, I almost feel like this isn't exclusive to Trump. Um, I feel like this treatment would probably be happening with a President Rubio, uh, a President Walker, just maybe to a lightly... I, I lightly thought that some of, the, some of the early analysis, including from a few honest uh, Democrats and leftists, was, was particularly uh, of note, and that is they said, look, the, the part of the problem here and why a lot of Republicans, uh, myself included, just just don't want to hear it at all about how Trump is Hitler. Like, I, I don't even I'm not even giving this like a, a hearing. It's not even not even given the time of day. It's because Romney Romney wanted old people to die and gave people cancer and was a robber baron who, you know, ran ran over poor people in, in, in his, you know, Maybach for fun. I mean, that's what they I mean, Romney's like the nicest, most clean cut guy one can imagine. And they made him into a comic book villain. So I, I agree with you. They'd be doing this about about anybody. But with Trump, it has actually reached a point where they seem to think that Trump is going to create nuclear war and, and actually destroy the world. Like It's not just bad for America. Trump is there were earlier last week. There were uh, tweets about how this is Trump's uh, Trump's grand plan here with climate change is to is to eliminate the human race. That today is the day that the beginning of the end of the human race happened. This is from people with like large followings. It's it's interesting. And, and, you know, the the title of my piece was it's the end of the world. And then in parentheses again. And we've seen a number of stories that, like you said, The New York Times had a very serious straight faced editorial about how the world was going to end because Trump uh, basically recalled a bunch of Obama climate policy provisions, which, by the way, weren't going to do anything anyway. Um, but it's it's interesting and sad, right? Because I, I go to dinner with people and I, I, I have a lot of friends of different political persuasions. And to a T, every single person I've asked about it, they say, look, Heather, I don't even pay attention anymore. I'm tuning out, um, which is a real shame because there are things that are important to be paying attention to. And it, the, it is important for the media to hold government accountable, to hold the president accountable. But They've gone off the rails, and as a result, people are just tuning out. Where were you on the uh, American Health Care Act, by the way? I didn't get a chance to have you on the show during that whole debacle, but what did you think of the bill and how all that went down? <laughs> I was like, Republicans, you had one job. Um, yeah, this is why know, we, Republicans, I, this is why we can't have nice things. That's what I kept thinking. 
Yes, yes. And, you know, at a certain point, you know, it's very exasperating being a Republican. And that was one of the examples, you know. I mean, it was very strange, too, because I feel like people, you know, have talked about, oh, Donald Trump is the showman, right? You know, that's how he became, he, you know, he was the you know, host of The Apprentice. He can put on a good show. This is the worst show on earth. You know, it was something that was jammed through. And by the way, Paul Ryan um, has had seven years to prepare for this. It's, it's a disaster. So, yeah, it was very disappointing. And it's also very sad because this is something that is hugely important to people. And it's hugely important that Republicans get this right. So, yes, I thought that was a complete debacle. Um, whether they'll be able to remedy or that, that or not, uh, we'll see. And what do you think about the Republicans uh, manning up, pardon the microaggression, and, uh, <laughs> and deciding that they're going to go forward no matter what and put Gorsuch through? Well, do you have doubts, by the way? If, if, they, if they don't do this, I'm done with them. <laughs> I'll say that. If they don't put Gorsuch through, I'm going on GOP strike. <laughs> you know, yeah, that this is another you had one job moment. But then again, you know, this is this is the problem with the government right now. Whatever powers we're going to give to Trump, whatever powers the Congress is going to give itself, whatever rule changes, that's going to that's going to hit back when the Democrats get the majority. Right. So, you know, and I, and I really think that one of the things you notice with all these the world are ending pieces that you see are just this overinflated sense of what the government should be doing in our lives, what the government is doing in our lives. You know, you'd get the, you'd get the sense that if the government were to shut down for one day, you know, all the plants would wilt and we'd fall over. Um, so all over the media, there's this sense that we're just hugely dependent on this government. It's, huge, it's hugely important, but no, it's, it's a bit of a sham. It's a bit of a farce. Um, so, yes, I want to see Gorsuch confirmed. I think he, you know, I, I, I'm not alone. Everyone thinks he's, he'll be an excellent candidate. But, of course, there's, a, there's some dangerous territory we're getting into as well, you know. I mean, Harry Reid pulled this off uh, back in his day. It, it, you know, but is, don't you think it's, it's – isn't it possible to make the case, and maybe this is a, back, a, a, a backwards way of me making the case, <laughs> that, that as soon as Harry <laughs> Reid – as soon as you did it for lower court – uh, mm-hmm. nominees. It was just a question of when it would happen for the Supreme Court. I, oh, I, I don't think it was. They, they, once that they they uh, you know broke this broke this uh, dam, it was just a matter of time before the whole thing came down. Yeah, you're not going to put the horse back in the barn. I think that's absolutely right. Um, so you know, a lot of the high dudgeon that you see from Democrats about this is again, you know, a very bad show. Um, but they yes, can't even I'm... come up with why they don't like Gorsuch, by the way. That's the other, you know, it's, it's not even like in the Bork era where they're like, do you know what this guy rents on video? We like rated his blockbuster <laughs> video. You know, they actually did that, if I remember, which is just insane. Uh, but yeah, they don't even have that. They're just like, yeah, he's, you know, Gorsuch man stuff. He's not Merrick Garland. I mean, I think that's basically, you know, what we're what we're dealing with. And um, so, yes, if if if. if we can get a good Supreme Court justice out of this. That would be absolutely marvelous. But the amount of shenanigans and hypocrisy that we're seeing on Capitol Hill right now is quite something to behold. And now on to the other big story today. This is Eli Lake's uh, bombshell piece in Bloomberg. Top Obama, advi- a top Obama advisor sought names of Trump associates in Intel. Here's how it goes. White House lawyers last month learned that the former national security advisor, Susan Rice, requested the identities of U.S. persons in raw intelligence reports on dozens of occasions that connect to the Donald Trump transition and campaign, according to U.S. officials familiar with the matter. End quote. That seems like a big deal to me. <laughs> Heather, what do you that seems like something that's worthy of discussion. 
You know, I have been trying so hard. You know, I have been very grudgingly following this story, right, which has been unfolding over the course of, what, a month? Um, and, it, again, I, uh, my take on this is – Let's wait and see. Yes, I do think there is something there there. But what's frustrating to me about how this story has played out in the media is, again, every single day, red alert, world's ending, with every little snippet that comes out, it's very hard to track this story in an accurate way, right? And I don't think the media is doing a very good job with that. It's funny, I asked my husband the other night what he thought about this story, and he gave me a blank look, and he said, you know, Consumer confidence is at an all-time high. <laughs> I'm like, okay, you're not paying attention. Um, so, yes, in my opinion, I, I, I'm a little frustrated with the breakneck speed at which, you know, misinformation is, is tweeted out, hysteria is tweeted out. So um, my take on the Susan Rice story is I really want to just wait and see. But, yes, it, it looks like something. No, no, I, I'm, see, I, I'm not going to the place of Susan Rice – uh, you know, uh, uh, abused her post, committed treason. We should bring her up on charges or what? I mean, first of all, even if she did this, it's almost certainly not illegal. But the point here yeah. is, I don't know, but I would certainly be curious. I'm much more curious about that than a meeting. I mean, have you seen what's on the, the main story in the New, on the Washington Post right now? It's been there, I think, for hours, uh, three hours. That that Eric Prince yeah. met with some Emiratis in the Seychelles yeah. and a Russian dude. Yep. That's not a bigger story than the Susan Rice thing. And, and there's nothing oh. about Susan Rice anywhere in the Washington Post. There's nothing about Susan Rice anywhere in the New York Times. That doesn't seem to be a coincidence to me, Heather. Oh, uh, no, absolutely not. And, of course, you know, we shouldn't be surprised if there was something a little shady going on because, as we know, there was some weird stuff going on with the Obama administration, including, you know, Lois Lerner essentially weaponizing the IRS, which is, you know, terrifying against uh, people who weren't in the right political camp. So, um, no, Absolutely. I think there's a double standard as to how the story is being treated, um, and it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds. Yeah, I mean, there, the one thing we do know is that there was a leak to a newspaper about a phone call that led to the resignation, you know, about a phone call that was illicitly obtained, the information, you know, whether it was through, you know, cr- crazy spy stuff or it was just through someone doing an old-fashioned, like, guy up, you know, in the telephone wires, wire, whatever it was, however they got the information. And, you know, I think people have ideas already, but we don't officially know yet. It wasn't (laughs) obtained through the normal course of uh, of events. And that led to the resignation of a national security advisor in this administration. So Mm -hmm. there have already been consequences. It's not like this has all been a big a big nothing. And I, I would agree that we should wait and see where this goes. But I also think that we're running really fast towards Nowheresville with, yeah, we need to figure out what Russia did in this election. We, we know what Russia did. We, R- Russia hacked into Podesta, <laughs> or, or based on what the intelligence community tells us here, and I'll take them at their word. I used to work for them, uh, that Russia hacked into Podesta's account, got some DNC stuff. It was embarrassing. Don't give your password to somebody who's like, my name is Yuri. Give me the password. Like, that's the, that's the national security lesson. Aren't you, but Buck, aren't you looking forward to four years of nonstop Russia investigation and breathless, breathless tweets coming out every night? About- <laughs> I just think it's also fascinating that there's so many, yeah, I mean, there's so many journalists that without irony are, are lecturing us all now on how Putin kills journalists and Putin is this thug and Putin's done all these bad things. And I was like, oh, so, so when Obama was in office, people pointing that out were warmongers. What are you going to do? Go to war with Russia? They have nukes. It's the same thing they used to say with Iran. But now they're saying it all the time. It just, again, hypocrisy doesn't bother a lot of people on the left, but it's hard not to sometimes choke on it a little bit. Well, you know, I, I have a story coming out this, hopefully this week in The Federalist, and it's called, um, well, I won't spoil the title, but it's about how I hate the internet. And uh, 
I, I don't hate the radio, Buck. I love the radio. There we I, go. I, good, good save. But why do you hate the Internet? I, well, you know, it's interesting. And I, I have this anecdote in the piece where it's a Thursday night and I'm at my house and I'm stirring a pasta sauce. And I've, I've made a vow to myself for the most part to try to stay off social media and non-work hours. And uh, I made, of course, I got lured back in. Every time I think I'm out, they pull me back in. I check Twitter. It's a Thursday night, and the Internet is – Twitter is just exploding over this story that Mike Flynn is, you know, searching for an immunity deal, right? And it's all caps screaming, okay, the impeachment, it's all over. And, you know, I'm old enough to remember the presidential campaign when that happened every day. <laughs> People were – and it was exhausting. So, you know, there's this Twitter news cycle of hysteria that I don't think is helpful to anybody, and it's really hard to see through to it, you know, what, what matters. And I, I just keep waiting for the media to get tired out, you know, and say, okay, maybe we shouldn't freak out this time. Maybe we should actually, you know, figure out what's happening. It hasn't, you know what, we're what, 10 weeks in? It still hasn't happened. So who knows? I'm not, I'm not sure the Demo- I'm not sure Democrats really want to have to fight over Obamacare, for example. I mean, they will, but I think they'd rather chase the story of Trump Russia treason, even though they're they're forced to in an embarrassing fashion say, we, well, we don't have any actual like evidence of this, but they'd rather just stay on that than get into uh, policy debates, uh, which I think that says a lot. But maybe I'm reading more into it than I should, because health care <laughs> with Republicans was also debacle. So they make me sad right now. They had one job, Buck, one job. I know, and it shouldn't be that complicated. They, they, they should have. They keep saying it's so complicated it's because they, they allow it to be. But all right, so Heather, when's your piece coming out? When can we look forward to this magnum opus? <laughs> At some point this week. I'm not quite sure, but I will tweet it out as soon as it's out. Of course, right. ironically, I hate the Internet, but I'm going to put it out on Twitter. So, But uh, I, I agree with you on your point about the social media. I, I've started to set social media time boundaries and and I, I always wonder, some of my colleagues in media that have tweeted like hundreds of thousands of times or that are posting on Facebook like 30 times a day, I'm just like, how do, how do you, how? Brush your teeth. How yeah, do you I, don't, teeth? I don't know. How, you know do, it's important <laughs> to disconnect. I don't know. I, I spend three hours on the radio and like, this is what I do. I, I'm not so psyched about all that other social media stuff all the time. But anyway, I digress. All right. Heather Wilhelm here, everybody. She's of National Review and The Federalist. Check out. Her piece on thefederalist.com later this week. Heather, thank you for making some time for the Freedom Hut. Thank you so much. It was fun. We've got some calls up on the lines. Let's take them. Bruce in Florida on WFLF. Hey, Bruce. Oh, hi, Buck. How are you? Um, I'm good. I really enjoyed uh, Wilhelm there. She, uh, she's got it together. Uh, and not just a cute laugh. She's a smart girl. <laughs> all right, uh, easy there, Bruce. That's <laughs> all right. What's going on? What's on your mind? I'm in love with Bruce. She's smart too. Um, nothing. I thought you guys had a, hit a, hit the nail on the head when you were talking about the hyperbole that these guys are doing. It's like a hyperbole uh, hypocrisy hurricane with the Dems anymore. And um, I don't know where they go from here. It's like you, they get to the point where they're saying oh, this is the ultimate, nothing can beat this, and it's the worst thing in the world, and then that just sort of fizzles because it's either not true or they've overhyped it, and it just doesn't, didn't matter in the first place. Yeah, well, I, hyster- I hysteria also inherently ta- grabs more attention than reasoned, sober analysis, yeah. and part of the problem here is that it, it becomes this one-upmanship of who can have the most hysterical anti-Trump headline out there, right? Yeah, that's it, exactly. And, and so everything else gets drowned out. So when I want to sit here and talk about how you know, Trump 
is uh, Trump needs to do a better job leading the GOP towards truly conservative health care reform. It's like I'm a guy on NPR talking about a bake sale in the Midwest somewhere when everyone else is yelling, Trump is a traitor. Oh, my gosh, look what's happened with the Obama administration surveilling Trump. Like you have all these. That's what the conversation is. And so anybody in the middle who's like, hey, I'd like my my health care premiums to go down. Can we actually do that? Is, is like, a you know, is some kind of a, uh, a nerd, you know, is a, is a dork that needs to be quiet. Yep, I agree with that. But, you know, the other thing that I was thinking about when you were talking is the um, a lot of this started with the, with the right, the, what they call hate radio or the right wing radio stuff. It was all hyperbolic, the world coming to an end. The Obama's the worst thing in the world. And he turned out to be very close. Oh, to we're that. at a break. I'm sorry, I forgot. Sorry. <laughs> I thought we were at a break. Am I crazy? <laughs> don't put that out there. Wait, what happened? We're good? I don't know. Wait, what ha- what what did I miss? I thought we go into Oh. I'm sorry everybody. I thought I was going to cut off <laughs> that was so it was like it's be be very very quiet, Buck. I didn't know what was going on in here uh for a second. I thought we were going to break and I had to cut our fellow off there and I was just like looking at the board and they're like, "Nah, dude, you got more time, so why don't you just not do that where you think that you're off air and then all of a sudden I was going to like get up, go get some coffee. You guys are going to listen to the show. I'll be like, this is the worst radio show ever. He's literally pouring coffee and that's all we could hear. Um, but that's not happening. Instead, I'm telling you that there's a break coming here in a few seconds. We're going to talk about uh, U.S. foreign policy vis-a-vis China. And yes, we'll talk about the terrorist attack in St. Petersburg. So a jam-packed third hour of analysis. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are told. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Big diplomatic meetings this week for Donald Trump, including with Chinese President Xi Jinping. We're joined by my friend Stephen Yates, who is a national security expert and chairman of the Idaho Republican Party. Stephen, great to have you, sir. How are you doing? Hi, Buck. Doing great. Thank you. Uh, we got a lot to talk about here, Steve. So first, let's get into this meeting with uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, what do you what do you think the, the best outcome could be from this discussion between Trump and Xi? Well, I think it would be a mistake to think of this as a summit where major agreements are are, are made. Right. So what are the best first shift? steps is what I mean. Exactly. So uh, basically, this is an opportunity for the president to lay out his expectations for the Chinese leader on what needs to be done to deal with North Korea and how to recalibrate the economic relationship with China. I, all of my friends that are in the White House and in other, other parts of government at this point tell me that that's the mission going in. And I think that's the right approach to take. The president needs to basically open the conversation with these are the concerns and these are the expectations. And what do you, the leader of China, have in mind to do that brings a different outcome in North Korea, where three of my two-term predecessors have failed to change that direction and put the, put the burden back on the Chinese leader? Wouldn't expect an immediate helpful response, but this is the beginning of a multi-stage conversation. Now, before we get into the national security aspects and, and specifically uh, North Korea and how China can or cannot be helpful with regard to that troublesome neighbor, uh, on, on the economic front, that's that's what we heard the most from Trump about over the course of the campaign. 
do you think that there's a, a way to be both firm and constructive or if Trump begins to lay out there that there's there's a there's a new sheriff in town when it comes to the economy uh, that there will be immediate pushback from the Chinese and things will shut down a bit in, in terms of the diplomatic exchange well I expect he's going to basically give a, a very strong scene setter for Chinese President Xi uh, that you know these are the these are the, the this is the scope and nature of the challenges that we face uh, that he is going to take an American first poly- approach to trade and investment. And when uh, American companies are running into hardship selling things to China or when there are things that he considers to be unfair practices by China, he's going to speak up about them and expects no less from the Chinese leader. And the Chinese have taken a China first approach forever. So it should be something that's a familiar theme to the Chinese leader, just unfamiliar coming from American leaders. What are the levers that we have or that Trump has, that the the administration has on our behalf uh, going into discussions or not? not, Again, this is really just this is mostly a meet and greet. And there'll be a lot of uh, reading of tea leaves here by people in the media saying, oh, well, this is, you know, this is what the body language. And we saw this with Merkel and Trump, right? He didn't shake her hand or something. And it was, oh, my gosh, you know, what? Merkel's never going to see in the same way. Uh, so there'll be people that sur- that take much more from this, that surmise much more than necessarily comes across over the course of the discussion. But what are the ways that down the line, even, the U.S. can even things out in the relationship with China and exert pressure without being belligerent? Well, I think that there are some starter blocks to that of the enforcement capabilities. We've had lax enforcement on uh, some of the some of the export controls that we've ha- that uh, are relevant to China. We've had lax enforcement of some of the fees that they're supposed to pay when bringing things into our country. Uh, and uh, so I, I know that the new team going into commerce has been looking very very closely at that. And one of the executive orders that was just released is looking at up to a, a trillion dollars in net value to the United States that hasn't come in through the enforcement mechanisms as appropriate. Part of that is China, but it's a big part. And so uh, he can very credibly say that we're, we're going to be dead serious about this enforcement side of things, but we're also open to seeing where things can go in a constructive way. And what do you, the leader of China, have to say that could maybe make it so that fewer of our companies are under attack when they open businesses in China. There's a long record of companies that do great things going into China, and then a miraculously a copy organization and a copy product hits the market, and then they're squeezed. Now, uh, Steve, so you know, I, I know you're, you're a very humble guy for somebody who actually has very real national security credibility and, and uh, credentials. You are fluent in Mandarin Chinese. I would be throwing that around to people all over the place all the time. But <laughs> I do speak Chinese. Uh, I was a missionary in Taiwan, and then I worked for the U.S. government for a number of years using the Chinese language. And when I was in the White House and conducting meetings with Chinese officials from time to time, I could correct or elaborate upon a mistake an interpreter may have made. It's a hard business to be in. Uh, but yes, I've been studying and following and working on the Chinese for almost my entire career in some form or fashion, and it's a hard business. Uh, I don't think the United States has done a fantastic job on that account, and that's why I'm very open to a breath of fresh air and Donald Trump taking a different approach.
Now, sorry, I just, I just had to, Steve, because I knew you wouldn't. But for everyone listening, what I'm talking to I Steve about, what I'm talking to Steve about China and East Asia international relations and policy, guy really knows his stuff, right? Now, a, a lot of people out there, even who study it, are not fluent, uh, fluent in Mandarin. So anyway, uh, let's let's get back to uh, the North Korea angle of all this. All kinds of stories in the news media in the last few months about bellicose North Korean actions, whether it's the half-brother assassinated, what was it, in Malaysia by the two women uh, that were saying that, you know, they thought it was a prank, obviously, they were assassins. Uh, and then you've had various missile, either either missiles uh, tested or missiles threatened to be tested. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on with North Korea right now that gets headlines. But I, I think that most people who follow it say to themselves, okay, so we see this, we say North Korea is, is a terrible place, it's a true a true tyranny in a way that is from a political science perspective, fascinating from a humanitarian perspective, truly appalling and nightmarish. Uh, what? So what do we do? I mean, do we just sit around saying, well, you know, at some point North Korea is going to be able to fit a nuke on top of an, an ICBM and we're in big trouble. Are, are we just going to wait for at some point or what do we do? The dominant view is, yes, we will wait for that some some point. But we have lived with a near existential problem uh, with North Korea, just with the threat of proliferation. Uh, there was a facility that was put in Syria that the Israelis had to take out. Uh, there's just a very, very, very deadly network of proliferators uh, that North Korea is um, uh, an important part of that's been operating for a long time. So we've tempted fate. They don't just need to launch a missile that hits the United States. They can send things through any number of ways, give them to the Iranians, give them to terrorist networks, uh, and it's a very, very serious problem. Basically, uh, the problem has been for the United States policy is we can't have perfect containment of North Korea. The high seas are too hard to button down. Airspace over China is permissive. And so we need to be pressuring China to close down some of those routes. And we need China to use its unique influence in a way that changes the trajectory of North Korea. But they've shown no willingness to do it. And that is a very, very difficult nut to crack. And I don't think that a few conversations is going to make uh, a difference on it. But I think that our allies are getting increasingly concerned. And we are going to have to put on table uh, the, the, the measures that we, together with our allies, would have to contemplate if China doesn't mitigate this threat. And uh, when, when we look at all of this, though, there, there seems to be a continuity of a policy of not a whole lot when it comes to North Korea from the U.S. I mean, there, there things are in play. Sure, there are sanctions. I, I get all of that. But there, there's no major shift. I haven't heard anything from the Trump team yet, and it is very early, I understand that, about a different approach to North Korea per se. Do, do you see that taking shape, or are we going to see—is this, a, in a sense, such a— uh, a problem of the international community and so uh, of such long-standing uh, time frame that it just it is what it is, and no one has any new ideas. Well, I worry that it may end up being there. It is what it is, and no one has new ideas. But I think that there are measures that are worthy of trying uh, that have not been put in play, and I think the new team is working their way in that direction. Uh, it's very risky. It's very hard. The easiest to do thing to do in government is the same old thing. We have tried multiple times to buy the threat, and that has not worked. We've tried to appease the threat, and that has not worked. Uh, and the sanctions clearly have no effect on the behavior of the regime. 
So uh, we're going to – but it's also not even up to the first 100 days of this administration, and they don't have a full team to conduct a full review. At the beginning of each of the last three presidencies, there's been at least a year of time given to a North Korea policy review before they even tried different things. And so I think that this team is moving faster, and it's moving into this conversation with the Chinese leader earlier than the Bush administration did, earlier than the Clinton administration did, and earlier than the Obama administration did. But we're still very much at the beginning of sending signals and assessing options and risk. One more for you, Steve. You were in the White House as deputy assistant to the vice president for national security affairs in Bush uh, W.'s first term. Uh, Just got to ask you, the— situation that's reported on right now with Susan Rice and the uh, the allegations of unmasking. Do you have any just gut instinct feeling on any of this stuff, or are you still in a wait-and-see mode? What do you think? Well, the gut instinct is here's a person who is fully prepared to lie to the American people multiple times over in the wake of Benghazi. So it can't be a shocker that there's reasonable suspicion she might consider doing what's alleged now in unmasking the names of U.S. citizens that may or may not have been collected in foreign surveillance. Uh, But if she did any of those things and sought to get those names unmasked, to me, it is possibly the most uh, egregious violation of law and our national security interests out of the Obama administration. Stephen Yates, chairman of the Idaho Republican Party. And a buddy of mine, Steve, so glad you could join us, my friend. Come back soon. My pleasure. Thank you, Bob. Take care. Now let's get into what happened um, with, uh, if I can now, um, we'll get into the latest on this terrorist attack that happened in St. Petersburg. Uh, Last I saw, you had 10 who were killed in this and over 50 were wounded. This is right out of the playbook. This is right what you would expect from the jihadists. Um, It would be most likely, uh, we'll see if ISIS claims responsibility. ISIS tends to claim responsibility uh, for these incidents within 24 to 48 hours, usually, I think, of of the actual attack. And yet, we don't know exactly. Uh, It looks like it's a jihadist. Here's what we do know at this point. St. Petersburg subway, right in the middle of the city, uh, was hit. Uh, There were two bombs. One was diffused. One went off. The one that went off uh, killed 10, wounded over 50. It was, uh, I I would assume, considering that we saw, we were able to see photos of the purported second device, uh, it was explosives packed with ball bearings uh, intended to create a shrapnel effect to uh, kill and maim as many innocent bystanders as possible. This is similar to other attacks we've seen, and hitting mass transportation is one of the hallmarks of international jihadism. This is what they do. It is a a big and obvious target, a very hard-to-defend target as well. And there are going to be some, I would assume, uh, ramifications of this on the policy front as well. Uh, Russia has been very involved in the Syrian civil war for years now. Uh, The Russians uh, have been uh, pushing 
against groups in Syria uh, saying that they were ISIS, but they've really been dropping a whole lot of bombs on groups that were not ISIS. Uh, They have been very successful in propping up the Assad regime, which a few years into the Syrian civil war looked like it may have been on its last legs, but then uh, relatively quickly uh, the Russian air force that was used, or the Russian air assets that were deployed, as well as a lot of help from the Iranians, began to turn the tables and allow the Assad regime to take back territory. Um, So while Russia has not necessarily been focusing on ISIS as its primary target, uh, they certainly uh, have been engaged in a lot of horrific uh, bombing uh, in Syria that has created all kinds of uh, civilian casualties, uh, large numbers. We don't even really know the full extent of it. And yet uh, we find ourselves in a situation where we see the Russians and have to wonder uh, what their response here will be. Um, because they have been fighting against the jihadists for a long time, just as as we have. Russia is a longstanding uh, enemy of Islamic supremacism and uh, Islamist expansionism, usually in the form of the Caucasus region. That's where you see most of the anti, uh, anti-Russian anti activity, jihadist activity stemming from, uh, whether we're talking about Dagestan uh, or Chechnya. These are small regions in the Caucasus, which are really a, a transition, uh, transition in terms of geography between the Russian landmass and what we would consider the Middle East. Uh, you have a Muslim population there that has been a, a hotbed of radicalism and jihadism for a long time. You also have had t- at least, uh, well, two Russian incursions in the 90s into Chechnya against jihadists there, and they uh, were brutal, as the Russians tend to be in these cases. And there, I've read credible reports uh, from from journalists who I, I don't believe were in any way hyping their information or had any reason to lie about this, that in at least one case, the Russian government looked like it may have been willing to engage in a false flag attack to justify uh, a, and a, a major military incursion into Chechnya under, that's right, Vladimir Putin. In fact, the Chechen or the, the incursions into Chechnya under Putin's time in office were uh, part of his consolidation of power. Uh, and they were brutal crackdowns, and it's not, mu- it's not a, a part of Russian, uh, Russian history that gets a lot of attention, uh, certainly these days. But the, the, the Chechen terrorists have their own Islamic Caucasus emirate uh, and that they will refer to, and they believe themselves to be you know, an, an offshoot uh, an offshoot of the same jihadism that you see occurring in Syria and elsewhere. They're among the most well-trained. By the way, a lot of the Chechen jihadists are considered the most well-trained, dedicated, and ruthless. There are Chechens who are operating as part of ISIS in Syria. And I think it is most likely that we'll find out that there was some, that the perpetrator here, I believe it's one perpetrator, they think, right now, although there could be more, um, that these uh, perpetrators were... Uh, or the perpetrator, rather, was somebody who hailed from that region. That's likely. It's not for sure. We'll see more as we look into this. But it is interesting 
as you look at the fringes of Islamic expansionism, and I mean historically, uh, you see places where Islam abuts, uh, Islamic majority states abut non-Islamic majority states, and you tend to have a lot of conflict. Uh, you see this in the Balkans. Uh, we had a civil war or a number of civil war conflicts in the 90s that had to do with, uh, well, a lot of, uh, a, a whole bunch of different reasons and rationales, but there were certainly uh, Christian versus Muslim undertone to a lot of it with Bosnians and Serbs and Croats. Uh, and then you have with the Chechens, that's really the end of Islamic uh, Islamic majority landmass before it turns into Russia, which of course is not Islamic majority at all. Uh, and you have continuing conflict zones. So whether you are looking at the edges of the Sahara, which abuts places like Nigeria, where there's Christian Muslim conflict, the Balkans, where there's Christian Muslim conflict, Chechnya with Russian Orthodox Christians, there's Christian Muslim conflict. Uh, this is uh, the, the jihad is something that is very uh, all too real for the Russians. They've had some of the worst terrorist attacks occur on Russian soil uh, of any country. I mean, the only thing that uh, that it, it is by far a bigger attack on a civilian by jihadists is 9/11. But you look at the Beslan school massacre, the Russian theater siege. They have been hit many times and hit hard. And some people will look at what happened today in St. Petersburg and wonder if this will have implications for U.S.-Russia counterterrorism cooperation. We'll take, I'll talk about some of that in a minute. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. Got John in Mississippi on WBUV. Hey, John. Hey, Buck. Uh, I was thinking back to last summer. Last summer, uh, supposedly, these DNC computers were hacked, and supposedly by the Russians, and we've yet to see the evidence that the Russians did it. But we learned uh, more recently that the Obama's CIA had the ability to hack a computer and make it look like the Russians did it. Uh, and that's, that happened all about the same time that Trump got the Republican nomination. So now they're looking very close at Trump. And they need an excuse to spy on him. And the excuse, I, I suspect, and my theory is, that this uh, Russian hacking uh, is manufactured. It's false. And that's their, the basis for their reason for unmasking the names of uh, Trump's advisors. Well, okay, so you're, you're, you're bringing a lot of things to the table here. You, you don't believe, you, you don't believe that the Russian intelligence services or anyone acting on their behalf hacked into the DNC or Podesta's emails. Is that is that what you're saying? That's part of what you're saying. I'm not saying that's everything, but you, that, you do hold that, right? Yeah, or not necessarily Podesta's emails, but the general hacking of the DNC computer and leaking of their uh, incriminating emails. Uh, no, I, I, I've yet to see any proof that the Russians did it. All they can tell us, all Obama's administration told us, is that 16 separate intelligence agencies have decided and concluded with assurance that it was the Russians. See, they, they can't even say for sure they did, that the Russians did it. And there are no 16 intelligence agencies that are capable of deciding who hacked a computer. That's a, that would be a very specialized 
I think now technically it's 17 agencies, and as everyone's been pointing out, well, a lot of them are, are military intelligence arms in this country, and very a few lot, people, very of- few people can name all all 17 of the agencies. Uh, and I wouldn't want to be put on the spot and ask myself, quite honestly, even though I worked in the in the intelligence community. So, okay, a few a few things here. Uh, you, you think that there's Let's go to motivation for because I don't know either. I haven't seen the information. I assume a lot of it would still be, you know, the cyber intelligence. I assume a lot of it would still be classified. Um, I haven't I haven't seen that. Uh, so I can't tell you that I've seen it either. Um, but now, why would the let's say what you're saying is true? Why would any element any element of the U.S. government pretend to be the Russians? To get into Podesta, because my contention is, to, to, sorry, pretending to be the Russians to get into Podesta, let's just say Podesta's email account is shorthand, I don't, or, or the DNC, to get in the DNC computers. Uh, my contention is that this whole conspiracy makes no sense. The New York Times was reporting that there was a 95% chance Hillary was going to win the election, you know, the day of the election. Uh, this wasn't, this wouldn't be an effective way to, to turn the election and so if that's my contention, assuming the Russians did it, why would I think that the U.S. or U.S. intelligence agencies would do that and pretend to be the Russians? Do you see what I'm saying? It, it, that doesn't make any that doesn't line up for me because it's such an in, it's such an ineffective tool to to try to sway the election. So I, I can't play it both ways here. I can't say to you, OK, the Russians didn't do it. A U.S. government element did do it and then also say, but nobody would really I mean, this didn't throw the election and it's not a particularly uh, important thing. This is my my contention about why Trump wouldn't work with the Russians on this. Right. Because it's such a uh, a relatively flimsy way to try to bring this about. So that's just on the motivation side. I don't I don't really see that. I mean, um, I also don't really. Why would the. Why would the intelligence community put itself in that position uh, where they because, I mean, then you're assuming that there are people who are or not just partisans. You know, it's one thing to leak. It's another thing to get that. I'm sorry. Go ahead, John. I, I'm, I'm talking a lot. You seem like you disagree with what I'm saying. Go ahead. They were not motivated to turn the election. The U.S. government intelligence agencies were not motivated. Obama's like uh, to use a, a popular word nowadays, the deep state. Uh, people like um, Ben Rhodes and um, and this uh, uh, Susan Rice, these people, the same people that lied about Benghazi, that are call it they're partisans. They're partisans. They falsely claim that 16 agencies confirmed or 17 agencies confirmed. None of these, very few of these agencies, such as the Department of Energy and the U.S. Coast Guard. Look at the list of these 17. They're not specialized in the areas of computers. So they were just told. Well, but but at the FBI, I mean, there's a, there's a, I've got to try to be uh, straightforward and, and factual here, my friend. I mean, there's a, a letter, what was it, from the, uh, I think from the DNI, and the FBI signed off on it saying that they, uh, they believe that that Russia did do. I mean, so you keep saying sixteen agents. It doesn't matter. The, the, the a lot of agencies will defer to the other agencies if it's in their area of expertise, right? So you know, you're not going to see the Coast Guard's not going to tell you know the FBI or the NSA you know this is the way it is, you know, sir. Uh, so I, I don't really that that doesn't really. I'm not really seeing that line up here, um, and, and I don't really understand the motivation to do this, and and also. Uh, so, I mean, what was this? This was supposed to be insurance in case 
Trump won to then claim that it was a false victory. I mean, that's that's quite a I mean, you know, I got to tell you, I know a lot of federal bureaucrats. Very few of them would risk like decades in prison for computer hacking because they love Hillary so much. Uh, in fact, I've never met anybody who would do that. Leaking, maybe, but actual yeah. hacking or, or, or engaging in some kind of cyber crime? No. no. Wait, John, you keep saying no. What, what am I missing? You're telling me that, the, that you think that intelligence did this and not the Russians. I'm telling you that doesn't no. make any sense to me. So what am I missing? No. no. You keep yelling no. Okay, I'll be quiet. Go. What am I missing? These are political appointees uh, that are working in cahoots with one another. They don't have the expertise to hack, but they have the expertise to lie. That's their specialty. Oh, so you're saying they're just lying about all the evidence. It's not that they actually did anything. They're just lying about the assessment. Obama's people are lying about it when they say with 90 percent, 95% assurance that the Russians hacked the DNC uh, computers. But don't we think that Pompeo of the CIA is the director who's now a Trump appointee? If that were the case, wouldn't he be able to know that pretty quickly and come out and say that, no, in fact, this wasn't this wasn't what happened? I mean, you know, you've, you've got to you've got to you've got to remember here, uh, John, I, I appreciate you calling it. Thank you for your for your time and your and your passion. Uh, but it, all it takes is one person inside any of these agencies who can blow the whistle on on that kind of wrongdoing, even if it's a, the wrongdoing of an assessment. And all it takes is one person to come forward to say that, and then that's it. Then the whole thing unravels. So it's very hard to keep a conspiracy. You know, I, I assume now, and I, I tried to let John uh, tell me um, uh, what he was going for there, and I appreciate him calling in. Um, but the notion that somehow this was Obama appointees lying about the information. Anyway, uh, I've spent a lot of time in this. Sorry. Um but I just I don't see it as I don't see that as particularly plausible. I mean, what's the R- Russia hack stuff all the time? I mean, let, let's not there. There is a trend and I see this among some conservatives. There's a difference between saying Russia always does bad stuff. The Russian government. Right. I don't blame all the Russian people for this. A lot of really nice Russians. Uh, but r- the Russian government does bad stuff, has been for a long time. Putin is an autocrat. Um but I don't think that uh, it changed the election. Uh, I, I think that that's all very overblown and that's exaggerated. Um, and yet, here we are uh, being told that Russia, some people that I see are saying Russia is not going to engage in that kind. Russia would never do this, right? R- Russia wouldn't hack into the DNC and protest. No, I think I think they would do that. I, I think elements of the Russian government probably would do that. I don't think that's beyond them, based on everything else we know. And I also d- do think that there are limits to even what a particularly partisan Obama appointee in the intelligence community would be willing to say in order to uh, find some way to stack the deck uh, for or stack the deck against Trump in this case. So I am open to any number of theories, but I do not think this uh, uh, I do not think that this is one that we have to spend much more time on. All right. Uh, Kevin in Pennsylvania on the iHeart app. What's up, Kevin? Hey, Buck. How you doing? I'm good. Hey, um, I, I, uh, my theory is that uh, Seth Rich, uh, the DNC guy who was a Bernie supporter, I, uh, Julian Assad basically almost admitted that he was the one that leaked the emails to WikiLeaks. 
and Seth Rich was found murdered, and nobody's ever investigated it or has done anything. And uh, so uh, I believe this whole Russian thing is a cover-up for his murder. I've heard that theory before. Uh, I don't have... It's not a theory. I mean, Julian Assad basically put up a reward for his thing, and, and in one interview almost... Okay, well, we need, we, need to not, we need to not pretend that Julian Assange doesn't have outside motivations and, and is... Is a uh, is a friend uh, to America yeah. or truth justice in the American way? None of that is true. Okay. Julian Assange has done a lot to dramatically so, damage so U.S. national security so, interests. So I just understand so who the messenger is before we start saying that. You know, because what you're telling me then is that you take the word of a, of Julian Assange over uh, the FBI and the Director of National Intelligence, which that's I'm not saying that's impossible. I'm saying that's quite a leap. Right. Well, Seth Rich was a Bernie supporter, so he was he was, and he had access to those emails because that's what he did. He was in charge of their emails, so he was upset because of what the DNC was doing uh, behind, you know, uh, with Hil- you know with Hillary and the Bernie thing. And uh, you know, Julian Assad said that he got did not get their stuff from Russia. He got it in one of his associates picked it up in a college field in Washington, D.C. So, and then, you know, and then, and then Seth Rich was found with two bullet holes in his head and nothing taken. No, it wasn't a robbery. It wasn't anything. So where's his investigation? Where's the investigation on that murder? Oh, I think there is an investigation going on. My understanding is there's... Yeah, yeah. So what, so, so, uh, so what's the result of that? No, they, look, I'm not. I know they haven't found anybody. Uh, I, I, and it does certainly look very suspicious. Look, I, I lived in D.C. People don't just uh, guys walking down the street usually don't just get shot with nothing stolen from them for no right. reason, you know, whatsoever. That that right. it is an aberrant event to be sure. Um, and a I neighbor will... who lived right there, a neighbor who lived right there, said that immediately the CIA came and confiscated his security camera. Well, I hadn't. I have not heard that, so I'll have to take. I'll have to take a look at it. But it, it's. It sounds very. It, it sounds very conspiratorial, which is always based on a degree of, of truth, or at least a degree of unanswered questions. Well, as soon as we find that security camera, and we see, uh, we find out who murdered Seth Rich, then maybe we can. Get where did Where did you see a report about a security camera confiscated? There was a. Uh, there was a. Uh, an investigative reporter in Washington D.C. who went to a neighbor, who uh, okay, but I, I need a new, I need a new. I mean, was this on like wnd.com or was this on? Uh, is this like an Infowars thing or is this something you saw somewhere else? No, I saw it on the internet, but it was a, uh, it was an actual like somebody. Uh, I forget who it was, but somebody was investigating the murder, and he uh, and he interviewed this guy. Um, but um, you know, I haven't heard anything about about any investigation or, or what's happened with this. So, you know, you would think that a guy who was shot uh, and was high No, th- there's definitely been investigation. They have not found, they have not found the, the murderer, though. That is true. Right. And uh, when you think of the angle of it, when you think of the angle of it, you know, what DNC was doing with Bernie, we know. We know that there was stuff going on. And, uh, you know, the wiki and the, and the emails, you know, basically say it. I mean, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that Roger Stone, Roger Stone, who who is who is a pretty out there guy, was one of the first people to come out and, and come up with this whole DNC 
D- this whole DNC, um, Seth Rich, I think I said Frank Rich before, sorry, Seth Rich uh, right. probe. Um, but uh, I, I, look, I don't, I don't see it, so, but I haven't been following this particular story very closely, so I'll, I'll look at it again just to make sure I'm not missing anything. Nobody, nobody's covering. I'm Tenangle sorry? Nobody's covering. It's an angle that's nobody, that nobody is covering. Yeah, but you got to think, it, you know, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of conservatives, there are a lot of people that would want to get to the bottom of this, you know, I think honestly on both sides. If no one's covering it, maybe it's because the story is not as big as people want to believe it is. I'm just putting that out there. It's, it strikes me as a conspiracy right now. I don't, see, I don't see as much in this as you do, my friend, but I do appreciate you calling in to share it, and I will take a look. And uh, I don't, like I said, I don't see it, but then again... Just because I don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. So I will always try to take that approach with everything we're doing here in the Freedom Hut. You know, I thought it was so interesting the way that the uh, media was reporting on Trump meeting with General Sisi of Egypt. And you had the New York Times and others, you know, oh, Trump just placating a dictator here. Trump doing all this terrible stuff with El Sisi, who's just a thug and an autocrat. Keep in mind that before El Sisi uh, took control and got rid of the Muslim Brotherhood, which was in control in Egypt, uh, things were looking very bleak for us there. Uh, it was not a foreign policy success at all. And the Obama administration, for years, was fine with Sisi in power, or at least it wasn't willing to say anything or do anything about it. Uh, I was in uh, Tahrir Square a few years back and speaking to uh, activists, uh, Egyptian activists, about what what had happened there. And anybody who thinks that the Muslim Brotherhood was going to be good for that country or was part of a flowering of democracy is delusional. Uh, And the Obama administration in the early days uh, when Mubarak uh, was deposed and imprisoned was very hands-off about the whole thing. I mean, Egypt had been an essential ally of the United States in the Mideast for decades. And sure, it was a, it's an autocratic regime. It is a, any time you got a guy in a general's uniform who's not running elections in charge of a country, you're right to ask some questions and wonder what the heck is going on. Uh, But in this case, it was uh, certainly in our interests to have a friendly regime in charge in Egypt, and it did raise some very interesting questions. Well, if the Muslim Brotherhood wins, uh, are we supposed to say that that somehow is a good outcome? Just, you know, you can allow, and now I don't want to go to the Hitler, everyone always goes to Hitler, right? Hitler won a democratic election, which is true, but I don't want to always go to the Hitler. Point here being, just because someone's democratically elected doesn't, or a party is in power through democratic means, doesn't mean that they're not uh, tyrants in their own way and doesn't mean that we have to be supportive of them but the underlying point here was as part of the anti-trump hysteria there was no change really between trump's posture to egypt and what the obama administration had been doing vis-a-vis egypt for years and it was reported today like there was some big change and the trump was doing terrible things uh and i think it was T- rex tillerson recently said as secretary of state that all options are on the table for north korea oh all options on the table that's been the policy of the u.s government for like i don't know decades but because when Trump says that it's bad, that's a an operative principle for the media. Uh, we've got a lot coming your way tomorrow here on the show. I'm already excited about some of the guests we have lined up and some of the stories I'm going to get to talk to you about. Uh, please tell a friend about the show. Uh, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Uh, until tomorrow, my friends, shield tie.